0: Meditation on the last things has kind of, it's kind of waned. It's not something that people talk about a lot, but it's a very rich tradition in the church.
1: This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today's episode is about death. It comes to us all. It's inevitable. And it's not fun to think about. It comes to our families. It comes to everyone we love. As Christians, we are called to see death differently from the world. It's not just an end, but a beginning. But that does not mean that there is not grief and pain associated with it. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But from the beginning of the church, Christians showed that something had changed after Jesus' resurrection.
0: And St. Athanasius writes, uh, writes about this. He says that one of the things that, that distinguished the early Christians from the pagans around them was their lack of fear of death. And you see that in the martyrs just going singing to their death, to these brutal deaths being torn apart by lions, and they're singing with joy. And the, wh- the reason that they could do that is because they understood that Jesus Christ had defeated death on the cross, and so death wasn't just something that they meditate on and kind of get lost in the abyss of darkness. It was something that they meditate on and they find in it the light of Christ and the salvation that Jesus has won for us.
1: This is the sister who is known for starting the Twitter movement of Memento Mori, which means Remember Death.
0: My name is Sister Teresa Alethea Noble, and I am a sister with the Daughters of St. Paul. And I was asked to be on this podcast because I started tweeting about meditating on death every day about uh, 407 days ago. And a lot of people have been following me, and it's just become a thing that people are really involved in and talking to me about.
1: Sister Teresa Alathea came across the idea of meditating on death when studying the founder of her religious order?
0: So when I was first thinking about joining the convent, I read a book about our founder, Blessed James Alberione, and it mentioned that he had a skull on his desk. And at the time, I didn't really understand why he would have had a skull on his desk. I mean, it said that it was reminding him of death, but I didn't really have any understanding of the tradition behind that in the church. But I remember thinking, that's so punk rock, I'm going to have to do that at some point.
1: She put that thought into the back of her mind as she began her religious life. Every year in her community, they do an eight-day silent
0: retreat. During that retreat, one of the directors actually brought a skull with him, and he uses it as a memento mori, um, a reminder of his death. And so I was reminded of that desire of mine to get a skull for my death.
1: So what does a religious
0: do when she wants a skull? Ask around at lunch, of course. And so I was mentioning it at table after my retreat, And one of my sisters said, who is a really big fan of Halloween, said, I I have a skull in my Halloween supplies that I can just give to you. (laughs) And I I said, okay, great. So she gave me this little uh, ceramic skull that I put on my desk.
1: She knew that when something is around all the time, you tend not to see it after a while. But how, how can I make
0: sure that this doesn't just become something on my desk that I stop paying attention to really soon? And so that's why I I said, oh, uh, maybe I'll just tweet about it for a
1: couple weeks. So she chose a day to begin and put up what she described as a silly post. She was surprised by the number of reactions. The response of people
0: was really strong and it made me realize that this might be something, something that the Holy Spirit is doing that I need to pay attention to in my own life, but also in other people's lives.
1: When we recorded the interview, Sister Teresa Alethea was on day four hundred and seven of her Memento Mori. Skull on a desk. Reflection. It was unexpected that it had lasted so long.
0: Isn't that how God works? You just, <laughs> when you give your life totally to God, He just, He uses different things in your life and in your skills and in your interests, just to bring about His glory, and it's beautiful.
1: She has now released a Memento Mori journal that helps all of us reflect on death. One of the many proponents of this kind of reflection was St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of
0: the Jesuits. When he's giving advice for discernment of making a a decision, we can think, what would I want to do if I were on my deathbed? Just imagine yourself on your deathbed. What's the choice I would make in this situation? And I, I actually use that scenario a lot during my day. I just think, think of myself on my deathbed, and then it just totally reorients how I'm thinking about a decision that I'm making, Uh, and it helps me to move forward in in a different way.
1: This is very helpful and clarifying, as Sister has experienced. Here's an example.
0: Last night, I was going to go to to a mass in the evening. I had already gone to a mass in the morning, but this was a special mass for the forgiveness of sins, but we had to drive, you know... It was a long drive, and we were going to have to find parking, and I was tired. And if I had thought of that just in the immediate, I'm tired, I'm just not going to go. But I kind of – I did that little thought experiment, and I thought, you know, if I were on my deathbed, what choice would I make? And, yeah, I would go. And, and, and then I also thought afterwards, how am, how am I going to feel? I'm going to feel better, and I'm going to feel glad that I went, so I'm going to go. And so it just helps me to make different decisions.
1: And Sister notes that the answer is not always what you might expect it to be.
0: Strangely, you know, you'd think that it would put a lot of pressure on me to always be doing, to be kind of a perfectionist. But in my experience, that's not what happens. It just helps me to see things a little bit differently. And sometimes seeing things a little bit differently helps in kind of expanding my focus helps me to realize, actually, I do need to stay home today because I'm really tired and I need to take care of myself.
1: Reflecting on one's own death has been in the Catholic tradition for hundreds of years. And, well, it's uncomfortable.
0: In the early, early weeks of meditating on death, and and still really, I mean, I'm, I'm still anxious about death, let's be real, it does bring to the surface more anxiety. And so if if people find that that's not helpful to them, then I would say focus on something else because definitely don't do something that's gonna make you feel depressed or push you deeper into depression. I asked
1: her about that because when I was in depression, I was memorizing poems and very proud of myself until my counselor asked, do you see a common theme here? They were all about death, not so healthy.
0: We're not just meditating on death itself. For the Christian, meditation on death is much richer. When we're looking at death, we're looking at God. We're looking at eternity. We're looking at what's on the other side of death. So it's a hopeful meditation that helps us to kind of reorient our lives to that end, which is union with God. And so meditation on death is really not supposed to be something that is depressing, is not supposed to be something that is supposed to make us, more anxious. It's really le- it really is something that makes us less anxious.
1: In response to her movement online,
0: I've received hundreds of pictures of skulls on desks. People have told me that it's really helped them. That they've been inspired.
1: People have written to sister about how this
0: practice has helped them.
1: She thinks that one of the reasons is that in the modern world, death is kind of hidden away.
0: I think actually the reason that it catches on now is the opposite reason that it caught on in in medieval times, where where people were just face-to-face with death all the time. And so meditation on death was was kind of a a necessity for living well. Now I think we're not face-to-face with death all the time. Death is very sanitized. It's tucked away. It's out of sight. We see a lot of violence on TV, but in reality – Not many of us see death regularly unless we're working closely with it, you know, as a hospice nurse or something like that. And so I think there's an anxiety underneath everyone's life of impending death, but we don't think about it. And the fact that we're not face-to-face with death kind of makes that anxiety something stronger in a way because it's, it's underneath everything, but we're not really facing it and thinking about it. So I think Memento Mori caught on because because I think there's a lot of anxiety in our society right now, and I think that it, it kind of goes to the root of it. We're anxious about what is the meaning of life, what is death, what happens when I die, does God really exist? It kind of goes to the to underneath the the daily anxieties to really the root core of what is human anxiety. And so I think people just responded to that because I think people have a thirst for those questions, but they're not always aware enough to be asking them.
1: This reflection of Sister Teresa Aletheia's is born out of her own desire to grow spiritually and to be prepared to welcome death whenever
0: it comes. Memento Mori is not just something that I'm doing as an apostolate or as as my work as a sister. It's really, it's something that I'm doing for myself that has kind of flowed over into fruitfulness for other people. And in my own life, remembering my death has made a difference in how I approach decisions and in just how I think about life in general. And, And it has decreased my fear of death. I don't think I'll ever not be afraid of death, even though I would love that for that to be a goal. But bringing it to the forefront actually helps me to integrate it into my life in a healthy way, and to accept realities of life, like just aging and not being able to do everything, and limitations, and just the beauty of the beauty of just having one life and. This this one day is going to pass, and I'll never have it again, so let's live it as well as I can. It's really made a difference in my life.
1: Death is not always before us, as it was in past centuries. But we do face it when it hits close to home.
2: Father Paul uh, Dressler, very joyfully at LFM Capuchin, are now almost 25 years Next year will be, uh, 2019, uh, will be my 25th anniversary. So my Silver Jubilee as a Capuchin and my 20 years as a priest in, uh, in 2019. So it's kind of an exciting landmark or threshold to get to.
1: I went to see my friend, Father Paul, to do an interview.
2: Sarah, how oh, are hello. you? So good to see you. Hello,
1: but this was a year ago when I was first starting out and I didn't even know what we might talk about.
2: <laughs>
1: the audio also reflects that I didn't yet have a concept of mic volume. Not that I really do now, but please bear with me. It's worth it. Well yeah, let's We prayed first.
2: Jesus, we thank you for this day for this great feast of of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Father and I talked
1: about the canonization of Solanus Casey because that was a big day for the Capuchin community. But it turned out that what the Holy Spirit wanted Father Paul to talk about was his sister.
2: In 2009, my sister got very ill with cancer. My baby sister, Kelly, she at the time was 41. And this was her second round. She had been sick uh, seven years prior, and we had thought she had beaten beaten the disease of cancer. But anyway, it came back with a veracity... And started to, uh, you know, clearly challenge her and challenge our whole family. The
1: prognosis was not good. It was unlikely that she would get better.
2: So my dearest sister Kelly faced death with tremendous grace. And, um, you know, I was just praying this morning, thinking of her in my meditation, asking her to give me the grace to live with uh, as much courage as she lived.
1: Kelly, like Father Paul, was a convert to the Catholic Church, and he thinks that her most faithful hour came with the knowledge that she was probably going to die.
2: And one of the things that immediately came to Kelly's mind, which was extraordinary in itself, was, "I don't want this suffering to be wasted, whatever it may bring me to, whether it bring me to cure or or death." You know, she didn't know the great Fulton Sheen, but I thought of Fulton Sheen, who said, "There's nothing more tragic." In the world than wasted suffering. That suffering, as we as Christians know, is it has a redemptive value, and that though it's the hardest thing we humans face, it's also a moment where God can be extremely powerful. And you know, we worship at, a, at the sign of extreme suffering, at the sign of the cross. You know, So we, we, we gather all the time under a place of suffering.
1: One of Kelly's ways of not wasting suffering was to blog about her experiences and reflections.
2: So she began to write a blog, a journal, that would be on the web. Anyone who knows her or knows about her could check it out, and it would be kind of an ongoing journal of how she was doing with this, this, uh, this condition. This
1: is special in part because it is rare.
2: And it was extraordinary to me because I've known many people uh, who've had cancer, And one other human instinct is not to tell anybody. I mean, I've known people who've had cancer who they barely tell their family members, much less any close friend or beyond that. Somehow, you know, if I don't say it, it's somehow not as real, you know. And it's kind of a denial. I mean, it's an instinct of denial. You don't want to face that you have this this life-threatening illness. So for her to not only say it, but to say it to strangers is amazing.
1: Sometimes watching and hearing the suffering of a loved one is just too hard, and that's okay.
2: It was hard for us all in our family to read it. In fact, I, I think my mother probably never read any of them, to be honest with you. It just was too, uh, too painful for her to face that her daughter was dying of cancer. But I read them all. I guess it's still my intention at some point in the process to publish them. They're not long. I mean, the the entirety of it was probably 25, 30 pages. And each one was maybe a page of that. And They were sporadic. You know, she'd write when she felt inspired.
1: Hearing this again now as I'm editing, I think of Sister Teresa Alethea's journal and how maybe that's a perfect place for a dying person's thoughts. So what was so special about Kelly's?
2: One was this, uh, oddly enough, this sense of gratitude thanksgiving, that she was able in the midst of this life-threatening moment to see reasons to give thanks. And that still strikes me as a profound spiritual instinct that, you know, we see it all through the scriptures, the importance of thanksgiving. St. Paul talks about, you know, dedicate yourself to thankfulness. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. When I think of those biblical texts. I now think of Kelly, because, you know, it's one thing to say, I'm thankful when everything's going well. Uh, it's a whole other thing to say I'm thankful when uh, when life is, uh, when you're facing the end, and you're facing it in sin, suffering, but she was able to have this grace to see the goodness of life, the goodness of friends, the goodness of wine, she was a great lover of wine, the goodness of food, the and, and even though life was slipping away, she knew it. She, you know, rebelled against the darkness by thanking. I think that would be the way I'd say it. Uh, the thanking God is a kind of form of rebellion <laughs> against your own tendency to, to throw a pity party.
1: And Kelly didn't do that thing that is so natural to us as human beings, to ask, why me?
2: There is no pity, self-pity. Woe is me. Why me? Why me? That's the other extraordinary thing about her journal. I mean, she wrestles through that. And you see, you know, her own verbal kind of wrestling through the tendency we all have to feel self-pity. But she always kind of pulls herself out of it. So she wa- She invites us in to watch her kind of <laughs> go through the woe is me, why me, and that sort of... That. In fact, I remember one journal entry... She was even saying, why me? Then she comes to the conclusion, well, why not me? <laughs> you
1: know? Father Paul says that Kelly's journal reads like the Psalms.
2: Because the psalmist often does the same thing. He sort of starts in one place of depression or anger or frustration or resentment to God and works the way through the psalm to come to praise and thanksgiving. So it's it, they're my personal psalms.
1: I knew about Kelly because when I was a teacher, Father Paul would come and say Mass for the girls that I was teaching, and he shared some of Kelly's thoughts with them.
2: And then the the last theme that I probably quoted more often than any, which I try to remember every day, is the Do It Now theme. In fact, that's the last journal entry she wrote just two months before she died. She did, of course, know she was going to die in two months after that journal entry, but she was very sick at the time. The treatments had not worked, she'd lost her lung <laughs> in surgery, she you know, was really riddled with with cancer at that point. And, you know, she writes, you know, whatever stuff you might be going through, job woes, breakups, you know, cancer, you know, you you fill in the blank. Whatever whatever thing you might be going through, don't let it stop you from still living. I think that's a profound insight again that we tend to think that our struggles give us a pass to stop living and her assertion in this final journal entry which i think is a brilliant piece of spirituality is no <laughs> you know, you're still called to do it you know, to do whatever it is that god's calling you to do at that moment and do it now you know, don't wait till tomorrow All the things, all the good things that you you postpone, well, first you may not have the time to get around to it. So that's perhaps perhaps the most profound one of of many.
1: As she journeyed toward death, Kelly read A Little Padre Pio every day, and he became like her companion.
2: It seemed as though that was the thing she needed to hear on that particular day so that it was almost as if (laughs) God had, who incidentally set it up that when she was reading that's what she needed to hear and she was very consoled by the word. And basically the devotional was, was the scriptures and something from Padre Pio. So she's being very close to Padre Pio and again Padre Pio, a saint of suffering.
1: Finally the day came.
2: The most profound spiritual moment in my life was, uh, was I guess the day she died. Uh, so we knew she was coming to the end uh, she knew she was coming to the end and at the very end she had uh, she was having a hard time breathing and so they had intubated her and she was and it was the end we all kind of knew it and thank god we were all there it was February uh, 2nd and she was on on um, Propofil, which is used often in hospitals um, to sedate people and to keep them calm. So she was under this kind of comatose or slightly comatose state and intubated. And so she was comfortable. So we had gathered at her bed on this last day, and we began to pray. And the doctors had told us very uh, strongly. They had said, look, you know, she's not going to wake up she's under this propofol, uh, she's very comfortable, and we're not going to take her out of that, and so that's it. So we said the final prayers of the church, you know, I anointed her again and prayed those sort of final prayers that the church has for the end. And uh, she came out of her... (laughs) She Mm. came... uh, She came completely out of her sleep. And she still had the intubation. So the interesting thing was that this tube that had been so frustrating for her before, and it sort of made her gag, and it was still down her throat, but she was totally peaceful. She had no problems. Uh, and her face was uh, was rather extraordinary. Um, and so then they took the, the tube out because they realized it was time for her to go, and of course gave her a lot of comfort. And again, it was just this profound experience of her being there. And we were all, of course crying, and we were all very upset. I never want to forget how she looked. I've never seen more peaceful peaceful face. It's so my sister got ready to meet the Lord.
1: There were three great moments in Kelly's death. First, for her husband.
2: He's a tough guy. Philadelphia boy. Hadn't um, really grieved. But at this moment, uh, it is as if she woke up out of her... Coma, so that he could, and I remember he just bursted in tears and just began to weep and weep and weep. And uh, of course, hugged her. You know, was able to feel the pain of her of her passing. So it was a gift, this grief that uh, she was able to give us, uh, especially him, as he, he wept for her there.
1: Next, while Kelly was peaceful, the family wasn't.
2: While she was so peaceful, I think all of us were just anxious as cats about this whole thing. Of course, we were all very, you know, just didn't know what to do. So, of course, in our nervousness, in our anxiety, we uh, we said to her, oh, oh, we have your iPod. We had an iPod there with her. And, would you like to hear, would you like to hear your songs, you know? And I remember her shaking her head. She took her, her hand, her thumb, and her you know other four fingers and started you know kind of like a, a, a duck quacking uh, which of course indicated no I don't <laughs> I don't want to hear my iPod. I want to hear your voices. and I uh, I take uh, profound theological insight into that, as I think we're so distracted. I think uh, that's kind of how we are in culture today. We're all we all have our iPods on, and uh, we're called to listen to each other's voices.
1: Finally, Kelly pointed to the foot of the bed, where her padre pio book was. She wanted to hear from the saint as well.
2: I picked up the book, of course, being the priest brother, I was the one. With tears in my eyes, we, I just opened it up, you know, uh, Bible or, that or whatever, just opened up to whatever page. And it was not, you know, marked or anything, but I just opened it and I began to read. And uh, the words, and I can almost quote them by heart, the words were his vision of death, bright and beautiful, vast as the sea. I remember those words, bright and beautiful, vast as the sea, beyond all pain, beyond all suffering, beyond all tears. What a great day uh, to meet uh, the bridegroom. And it, it was this beautiful uh, vision of death uh, and of how bright a day, well, how beautiful a day it will be. And of course, now we're all crying, and we're all just amazed at this uh, coincidence of Padre Pio speaking of the goodness of death and the beauty of death, the beauty of going home, the bride, the bride coming to the bridegroom. There was a lot of bridal imagery, spousal imagery. And the extraordinary thing again was as I was watching the faces and everyone was crying and trying to imagine and believe this, but Kelly's face again was the face that I recall because she sat there in her bed Again with sort of a knowing, radiant smile, just sort of, yeah, and uh, I realized we weren't reading it for her sake, we were reading it for our sake, because somehow God had already given her the sight of that which we were trying to believe in faith, and that she was just, yep, that's what it's going to be like, and now uh, that's where I'm. You know, I know my Redeemer lives, so to speak. You know, and I know those words are true. So when I'm praying, uh, asking for the Lord to give me faith, it's it's that it's that moment that I go back to. Mm-hmm. How's that? Franciscans have always believed in memento mori, which is an old idea of you remember, remember death memento mori, remember death not in a macabre sort of eh, I'm going to die, isn't life terrible but no, in another kind of way to say, hey, you know, life uh, it needs to be lived well so I think to die well is to live well <laughs> you, don't, you don't die well if you haven't tried to at least try to live well
1: so everyone remember death, you will die someday I hope I can die like Kelly did to leave off this episode, I'm going to read a little bit from Joseph Ratzinger's book, Introduction to Christianity, which I can't recommend highly enough. This is the section where Ratzinger is writing about Jesus' death. Quote, There exists a night into whose solitude no voice reaches. There is a door through which we can only walk alone, the door of death. Christ strode through the gate of our final loneliness that in his passion he went down into the abyss of our abandonment, where no voice can reach us any longer, there is he. Death, which was previously hell, is hell no longer. Neither is the same any longer, because there is life in the midst of death, because love dwells in it. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor.
2: Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks, everyone.